In November 1976, a woman named Misa Chang opened a restaurant called Empire Sichuan in New York City. It was a bleak month in New York, cold, dark, not great if you're trying to get people to walk in for dinner. But Misa was inventive. After two weeks of really disappointing dine-in service, she printed out hundreds of paper menus, advertising dishes like General Tso's chicken and Mushu pork. Then Misa walked to nearby apartment buildings, snuck in, and slipped her menus under people's doors. And just two hours after she did this for the first time, she got her first delivery order. One ton soup and an egg roll. Misa walked two blocks in the snow to deliver the food herself. And for her efforts, she got a $1 tip. Empire Sichuan was not the first restaurant to offer delivery. As we said in our previous episode, some of the earliest ads for delivery were posted many decades earlier for restaurants in California, not New York City where Misa was. But if you look at what was happening in the 1970s, delivery, as Misa pioneered it, fit perfectly into the new on-demand consumer culture that was taking over at the time. You could see this in the way new products were being advertised on TV, like the ATM and the VCR. We're missing the big football Relax. game. Relax! My VHS home video recorder is taping it right now. Terrific. Watch. Terrific! There was this increasing consumer demand for instant fulfillment. Well, in this world of instant everything, uh, everybody's familiar with instant coffee in little packets, instant tea in little bags, instant pudding, and even instant mashed potatoes now. But perhaps the, uh, the nicest thing of all is this recent innovation. It's a little card that brings you instant cash. Instant gratification was a huge selling point, and Misa recognized this could happen with restaurant food. Chinese dishes at home almost whenever you want. Misa's strategy worked so well, in fact, that she hired her first delivery boy, a 16-year-old high schooler who became her son-in-law, Eric Ma, and she made more hires as more orders came flooding in. She'd send Eric and her other delivery workers out with eight orders at a time, and they'd bike hot food around the neighborhood for tips. I learned about Misa's story from a book called The Fortune Cookie Chronicles, and it was written by a woman named Jennifer Eight Lee. Jennifer says that in addition to taking food delivery to a whole new level, Misa was kind of responsible for this early form of spam marketing. Her flyers brought in so much business that they spawned a ton of copycats, and this turned into a flood of paper advertisements in New York apartment buildings. Jennifer says that the menus became such an overwhelming phenomenon that buildings would post signs that said, no menus, please, outside their doors. But at that time, it was really innovative and creative, right? It's like, well, if people aren't coming into the restaurant to order my food. Maybe I will like, deliver the food to, to them. Was it kind of making the case, like, you can have our food in like in the restaurant, you can have it at home. Like, we're trying to meet the customer where they are. Chinese restaurants marketing was not super sophisticated, you know, with this, like, you know, messaging. Yeah, I think it, it just sort of naturally evolved as we will offer delivery. And then the more and more people kind of order delivery, the more and more some of these restaurants lean into it. Delivery put Misa's restaurant on the map. She got a review in the New York Times and eventually expanded her restaurant empire. There were Empire Sichuan's as far as Miami. And then you had not just Chinese restaurants doing it, right? In New York City, you had Japanese restaurants or you had the Italian place. Like you just, in order to be competitive in New York City, especially in Manhattan, you had to have some form of delivery. 
It may have taken a while for this kind of restaurant delivery to take hold in other cities like San Francisco, Chicago, or Atlanta, but when it happened, Chinese restaurants were typically the first restaurants to do it. This is Dish City. I'm Ruth Tam. And I'm Patrick Fort. This season is all about food delivery. As we learned from our last episode, delivery was largely an exception to the existing game plan, and it wasn't exclusively Chinese restaurants that were doing it. But when it came to transporting multiple dishes and that strategy generating significant income for restaurants, Chinese restaurants pioneered that in the 1970s. So on this episode, we're going to talk about how American Chinese food became synonymous with delivery. And once delivery became big business for Chinese American restaurateurs, how did it change how diners thought of Chinese food and the people who made it? So why were Chinese restaurants in particular the ones that spearheaded delivery in the U.S.? Well, so I, I think back to our conversation with Emmalyn Rood. She's the food writer and historian that we spoke to in our last episode. She says the earliest Chinese restaurants were basically born out of struggle and that every innovation that they pioneered, including delivery, is a part of that legacy. Establishments such as Chinese restaurants that have been segregated into Chinatowns that have faced discrimination, up before 1922, a lot of the times, the way people talk about Chinese food, there'd be these horrible characters of Chinese people eating rats, and that was what people associated with Chinese cuisine. I think Chinese restaurants in particular had to find new ways to make an income, and food delivery is one of these innovations. All of a sudden, we don't only offer delicious food, good prices, we will be one of those places that will make it convenient, we'll bring it to your house. So I think it's a story of the need to innovate um, where other eateries just just didn't have to. That's so wild to me because Chinese food feels like it's been part of American food for such a long time. Like American Chinese restaurants are everywhere and there are sit-down restaurants, buffets, takeouts, carryouts. So many people eat it. I, I guess I'm not surprised that a restaurant owner would feel pressure to do something extra, but walking through the snow to get food to a customer like that's that's a lot extra it is pretty extra and you're right chinese food is super popular but i can imagine the lengths to which chinese americans would go to to run a competitive restaurant as emmeline was saying chinese food's popularity grew out of a really dark history like a little over 100 years ago which may seem long but is really only like three to four generations ago White Americans literally thought Chinese cuisine was just rats. So what changed? Well, before delivery took off, American Chinese food had to ride this wave of being both exotic and trendy, but like also familiar. Ah, an insider and outsider food. Yes. To get a sense of the roller coaster ride that American Chinese food has been on, let's take a little field trip 139 years back to 1882. I love field trips. 1882 is the year that American Chinese restaurants started to increase because although they existed before, there's one major thing that happens this year that pushes Chinese people toward the restaurant industry. The U.S. passes the Chinese Exclusion Act, essentially barring Chinese immigration and naturalization, a.k.a. A moment of very strong anti-Chinese sentiment. 
That's Heather Ruth Lee, an assistant professor of history at NYU Shanghai, no connection to Jennifer Aitley. Heather researches immigration and food in the United States. We connected over Zoom with 7,500 miles between us, me in D.C. and Heather in Shanghai, 12 hours apart. Uh, I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Okay. Okay. Great. Heather's work is all about trying to understand this dissonance, the difference in how white Americans feel about Chinese people versus how they feel about Chinese food. How is it possible for Chinese restaurants to be expanding, the number of them to be growing at a time in which it was really difficult to come into the country? Yeah, that's so strange. How could these restaurants be blowing up so fast during that time? Well, when Chinese people were banned from entering the country, the Chinese people who already lived in the United States were also actively discriminated against in the workplace. So they were pushed into jobs that Americans viewed as inferior women's work, laundries and restaurants. So how did so many of these restaurants wind up being successful in like this racist country? Like were these restaurants for Chinese diners? At first, yes. A lot of early immigrants came from the same southeastern region of China called Toisan, so Chinese restaurants were largely for Chinese people. But then an age-old marketing tactic changed the game. A celebrity influencer created a food trend. Oh no, it wasn't some sort of like rainbow chop suey cronut bagel. (laughs) It sounds gross and horrible, but it was literally chop suey. It's funny because I actually don't know what chop suey is. That's that's fine. I've personally never had it. So I'm just going off of my own research here. Chop suey is an Americanized version of a dish historians believe was originally Chinese. It feels pretty antiquated now, but chop suey was all the rage in the early 1900s. When Chinese immigrants first made it for themselves, chop suey was said to have been based off a Cantonese dish called chop soy, a dish of odds and ends that generally included offal. But in the U.S., chop suey took on a more American flavor with meat and thick gravy to make it more appealing to non-Chinese diners. Oh yeah, you know Americans and their gravy. The chop suey obsession basically started after a celebrity visited the U.S. It was a Chinese diplomat named Li Hongzhong in 1896. Here's Heather Lee. There's not really much interest in China um, for the average American. There's not really much empathy for Chinese immigrants. And in fact, there's a lot of apathy. Uh, But the visit of Li Hongzhang sort of breaks the way for a new moment in how white Americans imagine their relationship with China and as well as with Chinese immigrants. In the 1880s, America's leaders were starting to realize that they maybe wanted to be recognized on a more global stage. And hosting an important diplomat was a part of that. Okay, so did regular people know who this guy was? Li Hongzhong? Probably not. Like, China was not on the mind of the average American. But even if they didn't know who he was, they started to get a sense for how important he was because they saw his visit covered in the news. You know, which city did Li Hongzhong visit that day? And maybe more importantly, what did he eat? One of the things that gets misreported in this moment is that he ate chop suey. Uh, There's no evidence of him ever eating chop suey. But from this sort of misreporting, there's a mythology around him in Chinese food and chop suey. And you have tourism come out of that to Chinatown. This is a pretty critical moment because at the time, Chinatowns were maligned as like these dens of vice. They were places where white men of all social classes would gamble, smoke opium, and pay for sex. Uh, but Li Hongzhang sort of changes that. 
There's tourism to Chinatown afterwards. There's an interest in Chinese food. And very soon afterwards, you have uh, Chinese restaurants that are specializing in chop suey that start forming. And newspapers start describing it as a chop suey fad. It starts in New York. It sort of spreads to other cities as a result. You have Chinese tea rooms that serve chop suey um, open as rooms in upscale hotels. Um, and you also had sort of the cabaret style restaurants. Uh, the Cotton Club, for instance, had chop suey on its menu. All sort of adopt chop suey as, as a menu item. Okay, so that's all it took. Like we had this racist immigration ban for more than a decade and then all of a sudden... Like America decided that it loved Chinese people. Is that right? <laughs> Love is way too strong a word, but kind of like that's the that's the power cool. of the celebrity influencer culture, right? Like you've seen this. It happens all the time. All the time. People become fans of a celebrity of a certain background and they love parts of that person's culture. But when it comes to the people who are part of that community, they still, you know, harbor racist feelings towards them. Yep. The discourse never changes. It never changes. Yeah, never. And to further underscore this, even after America was obsessed with Lee Hongjong and Chinese food, America fully kept its immigration ban on Chinese people for 47 more years. Also, in 1927, there was this sociology study done about how Americans felt about Chinese people. And uh, we've got the numbers. Would you have them as a co-worker? 10%. Would you have them as a neighbor? 8%. Would you have them as a friend? 5%. And we're sort of at the peak of, you know, Chinese food being sort of a major modern institution. Chinese restaurants serve thousands of people a night in these large palaces um, that were had live music and dancing. And, you know, it's a place that everybody can relate to, but it doesn't really mean that you care about the people. And I think that's a reminder of, where is the limit of your ability to empathize? Loving the food, but not necessarily valuing the people who make it or deliver it, it's pretty familiar to me. Yeah, America loves a food trend, but working in the restaurant industry has historically been pretty thankless work. In the 1970s, another diplomatic visit prompts a change in Chinese-American food trends. Only this time, it's an American leader who does the traveling. President Nixon's departure for China. South Lawn. In 1972, President Nixon visited China after a 25-year Cold War stalemate. And this was triggered when the communists took over China. The government of the People's Republic of China and the government of the United States have had great differences. We will have differences in the future. But what we must do is to find a way to see that we can have differences without being enemies in war. Before Nixon went to China, American Chinese food was, again, chop suey, chow mein, egg foo young. These kinds of dishes were kind of starting to go out of style, starting to feel a little passe. But when Nixon visited China, his trip attracted a ton of media coverage, not unlike what happened with Li Hongzhong. This is the farewell banquet in Shanghai, a few hours before the... The American press was obsessed with what he ate and drank, particularly at these big state dinners. I don't think we'll start tonight. 
And that interest had an impact. The craze over Chinese food happened all over again. And this time, Americans were trying to replicate the official banquet meals that they had seen Nixon enjoy on TV. So people were starting to ask for chopsticks at restaurants. They were ordering shark's fin soup, Peking duck. Here's Jennifer A. Lee again. I mean, almost overnight, you just had these lines develop at these Chinese restaurants. Jennifer says that the hunger for Chinese food was intense. It really took hold in New York, but then it spread throughout the country. The dishes from that era are like Hunan beef and like Lake Tongting shrimp, you know, which at some point were like actually high-end chef-crafted dishes. Like the, the equivalent of like, you know, coming from like the Nobu or the David Chang of their day, right? Um, but trickling down in different ways to um, sort of the local community Chinese restaurant because there was demand. Chinese food ultimately became interpreted through an American lens. And it was around the same time that dishes like General Tso's chicken, orange chicken, sesame noodles, all that became part of the American Chinese canon. Jennifer grew up in New York City, near Harlem, right where delivery of these very dishes was taking off. You know, my mom would give me $20 and I would go uh, downstairs and I would buy these uh, boxes of takeout cartons. And, you know, I mean, I knew it was like not the food that my mom cooked. My mom is um, essentially from Taiwan. And I guess my take on it was like, well, mom is just like not as good a cook as, you know, these professional chefs. Okay, so some of the foods that we recognize today as American Chinese food are descendants of these like really fancy dishes from the 70s? In a way, yes. So around this time on menus, you might see more regionalized dishes from Sichuan or Hunan province, but you'd also see these American Chinese creations. And this brings us back to Misa Chang. By the time Misa opened Empire Sichuan in 1976 and started shoving her menus under people's doors in New York City, Chinese food had basically been through two life cycles in America. In a lot of ways, American Chinese food went through its biggest transformations when being Chinese was intensely politicized. And the food became popular because of the way Chinese American cooks reinvented the cuisine to be more accessible for other Americans. Okay, so define accessible for me. Like the recipes were made like tastier or more palatable for Americans or accessible like they'll literally bring the food to your door. Both. And this is interesting to me because even though American Chinese restaurants helped make food delivery a thing, these restaurants now haven't really been part of the big food delivery renaissance that we've seen lately. Okay, you mean the jump to apps, Grubhub, DoorDash. Right. Like, think of the odds that your local mom-and-pop Chinese restaurant is on Uber Eats right now. For years, it's just been call up your local Chinese place and they'll get it to you. Makes sense. That's usually how I do it. But... Is that still working in 2021? Are these places missing out on business happening elsewhere? That's after the break. Okay, so we've talked through more than a century of Chinese American history, but two evolutions of cuisine later, the number of these restaurants are shrinking. In 2019, Yelp reported that the share of Chinese restaurants in the U.S.'s biggest cities had consistently decreased over the last five years. I wanted to know why this was happening to mom-and-pop American Chinese restaurants. Are they losing out on business from delivery platforms like DoorDash or Grubhub? Given the rates that these platforms charge and the fact that Chinese food delivery is so ingrained in our pop culture, 
I was hopeful somehow that the phone your order method was still working for them. Yeah, if I want Chinese food delivered, I'm going to call the place because that's what I've always done. And I feel like I'm trying to avoid using those delivery apps. There is no real reason to make American Chinese food at home because it's always going to be better when it's delivered. This is Lucas Sin. He's the chef behind Junza Kitchen and Nice Day Chinese in New York. He grew up in Hong Kong, and that's where he had American Chinese food for the first time. It was delivered there, too. It's one of those odd cuisines that is perfectly optimized for delivery, it seems. Having fried chicken tossed in a delicious sticky sauce and having that thing sit inside of a styrofoam or plastic or box for 30 minutes in a lot of ways enhances the, the experience. And for that reason, I would always rather have American Chinese food as takeout or delivery than make it myself. Nice Day Chinese actually opened during the pandemic. They sell American Chinese food, crab rangoon, beef and broccoli, General Tso's chicken. In their first few months, delivery orders made up like 60 to 70 percent of their business. So I wanted to know how are smaller American Chinese restaurants doing these days, especially as the pandemic puts more pressure on the restaurant business. Many people don't want to keep doing this anymore. It's difficult. You know, it's labor intensive. You work six, seven days a week. The, the mom is the person in the front and the pop is the person in the back. And it's not an easy career at all, right? Lucas says that he and his co-founder opened Nice Day Chinese because they were concerned about the state of American Chinese food. Because after a life of back-breaking work, older restaurateurs were retiring. In some cases, their kids were stepping in to take over the family business, but in a lot of other cases, the next generation chose different career paths. They did it out of necessity, and many of them have children now who have gone on to law school and they've become engineers and, and doctors and things, and, and it doesn't require them to do such difficult work anymore. When I think about the American Chinese restaurants in D.C. where I live, a number of businesses seem to fit Lucas's description. The mom-and-pop restaurants are being run by older, first-generation immigrants who don't necessarily intend on passing down the family restaurant to their kids. I recently got to talk to Jimmy Chu. He's the owner of New Dynasty in D.C.'s DuPont Circle. He's run the place for 25 years, and he has a son who worked at the restaurant when he was a kid. But now, Jimmy's son is all grown up with his own career. All I know is he's in a computer IT software business. He, he studied coding. Jimmy's proud of him. The family restaurant is always there for his son if he wants the work, but Jimmy wants his son to be able to go and do his own thing. He makes more money than I make, so he is not, not work to do the restaurant business. I just survive. When Jimmy opened New Dynasty in the 90s, delivery helped pay the bills. Jimmy or another restaurant employee would drive food up to two miles away from the restaurant. But sometimes it wasn't worth it. They'd rack up traffic tickets, and since they never charged for delivery and they still don't, it started to feel like it was more trouble than it was worth. So 10 years ago, they cut the delivery radius to one mile and started mainly biking food to customers. And around three years ago, Jimmy decided it might be worth it to join third-party delivery platforms. And they started with Uber Eats. First, New Dynasty got a big bump in customers, but that bump dipped as more restaurants joined the platform. And then when the pandemic hit D.C., more of Uber Eats' weaknesses became clear. The number one concern for Jimmy was Uber Eats charged as much as 30 percent on each delivery order. And that was just way too much to sustain New Dynasty when business was already down. 
Around two months into the pandemic, DC put a temporary cap on third-party delivery fees. The most Uber Eats could charge Jimmy was 15%. And without this cap on the fees, Jimmy says he would not have been able to stay on the platform. He's had to weigh the good with the bad. It doesn't make good profit, but I can keep my employee employed. Jimmy's been able to pull New Dynasty through the pandemic, partially with the help of third-party delivery apps. But not everyone's made it. When the pandemic hit the states, many Chinese restaurants simply closed for months. They were the first businesses to take a hit when news of a coronavirus outbreak came out of China, and some places shut their doors permanently. But then you have restaurateurs like Lucas Sin, who opened Nice Day Chinese in New York, smack dab in the middle of a public health crisis. He was concerned about the outlook of American Chinese restaurants before the pandemic, so by the time he opened, he knew what he wanted to do. Build a American Chinese restaurant for the future that both celebrates the cuisine, but also can improve the business mechanism so that it becomes sustainable in a, in a business sense of the term um, into the future. So how is he going to do that? There are a lot of big things that Lucas is thinking about. Who gets to make Chinese food, how it's priced, and those are huge conversations that deserve their own episode. But one thing he's sure would make a difference. Getting American Chinese food back in the delivery game. Using third-party platforms. DoorDash, Grubhub, those guys. I would like American Chinese food to be as accessible as ever, right? If it's well-demanded, then it should be easy to order this stuff in ways that people like to order food. There are many issues with the restaurant industry that technology has already solved. Um, and I'd like for those solutions to be applied to Chinese food as well, to make the experience for customers as seamless as possible. Lucas isn't the only young Chinese-American restaurant owner who thinks this way. Chef Tim Ma opened Lucky Danger in DC during the pandemic. It's an American Chinese spot doing exclusively takeout and delivery. And for Tim, he knew Chinese takeout was already a good business idea. My family, when I say my family, like all my uncles, my parents have all owned Chinese restaurants in America. But he was convinced that American Chinese food could benefit from a rebrand. So when he launched Lucky Danger, making this generations old food cool and available online was necessary. His team approached the task like user experience designers. The very first step of the user journey is like, how does one start to crave Chinese food? And then what is the path that they want to go through to get the food delivered? In order to push American Chinese food into the future, Tim needed to market Chinese food to people who have never called a restaurant to place an order before. And really, for the, this, these generations, it's quick, simple, and like painless. It shouldn't be like extra clicks in the system for things that should be um, kind of ingrained. So we're trying to get if you look at our website, our website's like a good example of it. Packaging his food for delivery became hugely important to Tim, too. Instead of plastic bags, Tim uses flashy red and white paper bags. And instead of those white oyster pails and the plastic containers of more traditional Chinese places, Lucky Danger containers are compostable. They come with labels identifying which dish is what. The napkins that come with your order are thick and luxurious. And to top it off, each order comes with a sheet of stickers with Lucky Danger's little cartoon mascot. I love stickers. That sounds so cute. It is cute. And that cuteness is trying to get people to think differently about Chinese food and how it's delivered. The story of American Chinese food reminds me that food delivery is an innovation born out of struggle. 
And when I think of now, when I think of picking up the phone to order food, is that this is a struggle that's still happening. Like these Chinese American restaurant owners are trying to market themselves and innovate at a time of really intense pressure on businesses. And this is all while they're still doing the very brutal work of cooking and running a restaurant. And also in a time of heightened anti-Asian racism. Yeah, that's happening too. Jimmy told me he doesn't necessarily want his son to take over the family restaurant because Jimmy's just doing this to survive. But newer restaurant owners like Lucas and Tim, for them, making Chinese food attractive in today's delivery space, it's about more than simply surviving the present. It's about planning for a future, a future where their food is always a part of American culture. At the same time Chinese food was entering the delivery space, another food was doing the same thing, pizza. Pizza is just one dish though, not an entire regional cuisine. And delivering it wasn't pioneered by independent restaurant owners. It was backed by major companies who had the money to fund all sorts of inventions to make delivery pizza possible. Pizza Hut, we serve more pizza than anyone else in the world. On our next episode, how pizza took delivery, a scrappy in-house process, and turned it into a technologically advanced, well-oiled machine. This episode of Dish City was produced by me, Ruth Tam. And me, Patrick Fort. Our managing producer is Ponzi Rutch. Mike Kidd mixed this show. Monica Ashby is WAMU's Chief Content Officer and oversees everything we make here. If you loved this episode, subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support our work by leaving us a tip at wamu.org slash support dish city. Any amount counts. Thanks. You can email us your questions and stories about delivery. Our email is dishcity at wamu.org. And we're on Twitter and Instagram at dishcity. We'll see you next week. Bye.